With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us. The mission of this show, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Uh, those who have listened to this show uh, over the past few months know that I continually come back to a theme of you know communities doing their own uh, projects, uh, raising their money, you know, doing all the things that need to happen, especially in rural areas and low-income areas where it just doesn't seem like the incumbents are going to be a player, are going to be a participant. And so um, we, we've got to think about self-reliance. And one of those stories that uh, that has come up uh, in the state of Vermont, we've got uh, a number of cities, uh, towns, townships that have come together and have successfully um, raised their own money. They have created an organization to run the project. They've moved the process forward. They've built the built a network and continue to expand on that network infrastructure. And I am very honored and very pleased to have uh, two of the you know, primary drivers behind that project, uh, Tim and Leslie Nolte, who are both here with us today. So both of you, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, thank Craig. You Good to be here. Great. Now we have talked before, you know, over the over the past couple of years, and you know, I'm quite familiar with the project. But today, you know, let's you know, for those who aren't familiar with the story, let's start with the the basic background. I think it's in 2008 was when uh, the communities came together to move this project forward. If we can just get a quick synopsis of you know what happened in the beginning and how you got to this point. Uh, and either one of you can take it away, whoever wants to tell the story. Um, well, fairly quickly, the territory is 800 square miles, about 1,600 miles of road, and 55,000 people, 22,000 households and potential customers, businesses, and so forth. Initially, the 23 towns that comprised the joint venture uh, attempted to raise the money all at once in the capital markets, we went with a public offering and um, for $90 million with Oppenheimer as our underwriter. As of early September 2008, we had commitments for $63 million of the 90, and we're closing in on the total when um, a little company called Lehman Brothers went bust and the world financial markets seized up. And with it, our 63 million, the 63 million that had been pledged and everything else disappeared. Uh, shortly after that, um, Barack Obama was elected president, and, and shortly after that, passed the stimulus program for um, federal money of, for rural broadband. We attempted to get money from that program and failed. So about two years ago, we got sick and tired of going around with a baking bowl and being told no and did 
what is a tradition in Vermont and said, well, you know, the big guys from the big cities won't help us anyway. Let's do it ourselves. So we conceived, A, we we, we pared the cost of the network down a great deal so that we would be able to start with a relatively small amount of money that we could raise from local people. And um, we got the number down. We got the the minimum size way down, amazingly low, and uh, managed to raise just under a million dollars from local folks. This is investments, not not charity, and built the beginnings of a network. And roughly every six months since then, we've had additional capital raisings and raised a bit more and built a bit more and raised a bit more and built a bit more. As of now, we've raised $2.6 million altogether, starting our very first one was January 2011, so 18 months ago. We've now raised $2.6 million. We've built about 35 miles of fiber, hooked up 230-odd people, and we're building at the rate of, well, we have been building at the rate of one to one and a half miles a week and hooking up four to five people a week. We're going to um, accelerate that to double. So we'll be doing something like two and a half to three miles a week, hooking up anywhere from six to ten people a week. And uh, we'll keep accelerating uh, because as we build, more and more people get interested and excited. So the amounts of money that we raise each time we go back have been increasing. Mm-hmm. At some point, the network will be large enough and the track record will be strong enough so that we can go back to the capital markets and hopefully raise enough to complete the project at one, swell, uh, one fell swoop rather than this relative, very successful but rather slow uh, bootstrap approach. Mm-hmm. So for the community that sits back and goes, well, great, but how exactly did they do it? How easy is that? What's the what's the process? I know you created a co-op. That was one of the – not a co-op. You created a nonprofit entity. So that was, right. I guess, what, step one. But how do you structure that, and how do you then leap from, okay, we've created this structure, this organization, to now we're going to go out and raise money from from our local neighbors? Tim, uh, well, the, let me handle that. Okay, you want to go? Um, is, yeah, uh, this is some. The or, we formed an organization which is called a, in Vermont an interlocal contract, wherein each of the 23 towns simply sign a contract amongst themselves that governs how they will conduct themselves and what their goals are. I believe that almost every state has a law that permits this kind of municipal undertaking where each town by itself is too small and needs to create a joint venture with another town. So in Vermont, um, there are towns that uh, have joint um, fire departments or libraries or solid waste management districts. And so this is in Vermont and I'm sure in other rural areas, um, this is a familiar mechanism. but because towns, um, uh, you know, really wouldn't have the expertise to operate uh, a telecom network, uh, in Vermont we were rather fortunate in that there was a, a separate nonprofit organization known as ValleyNet, 
that had been started back in the 90s by some Dartmouth College graduates who first brought dial-up service to the upper Connecticut River Valley. The Connecticut River is the dividing line between New Hampshire and Vermont. And ValleyNet um, eventually, 99, sold um, its dial-up service because by that point in time, dial-up had become a commodity. And so uh, ValleyNet had some funds to essentially um, help uh, pay for staff for some initial skeleton staff that could support the efforts of the town. Eventually, Ballinet and the 23-town interlocal contract signed a contract between themselves called the Design, Build, Operate Agreement, which vests in Ballinet the responsibility for handling all the operational aspects of um, the undertaking, while the 23-town interlocal contract is the governing body. It has bylaws. It sets policy. Um, when it came to issuing debt, and this really got um, kicked off when EC Fiber, as the interlocal contract is, is known for short, the, the full name is East Central Vermont Community Fiber Optic Network, a bit of a mouthful. Um, when uh, EC Fiber wanted to apply for financing through the stimulus program, uh, we felt and found that um, the ILC by itself was not robust enough for the taking on of debt, and so the ILC created a wholly owned limited liability company. And that limited liability company is the uh, issuer of the promissory notes that are the mechanism for community financing. So through all these rounds of financing that Tim has described, the EC Fiber LLC has issued unsecured promissory notes available to any investor in units of $2,500. And of the, we estimate that about half the investors who have invested in EC Fiber have invested $5,000 or less. Um, so that is, this is really an undertaking supported by many, many small investors sprinkled throughout our territory. Mm -hmm. And uh, how, I don't know how we measure degree of difficulty, but um, was this a, a, a fast process to get people to grasp or and then participate in, or was there a I don't know significant education and then finally people got on board? I mean, how was the how was that the, one two well, dance? The, the finance, it took a lot. We've been at this for over four years, mainly because of the the failed effort to raise money in the public markets and then the failed effort to raise money from the stimulus. Once we decided to do it ourselves. Um, rural Vermonters understand that, so that actually hasn't been that hard. And the um, the promissory notes, um, which are sort of like bonds, they're not legally bonds, but they're like that, mm -hmm. uh, because EC Fiber is a municipal entity, it's owned entirely by towns, those, bond, those promissory notes um, are tax-exempt, both the federal and state 
taxes and they pay uh, 6% a year. So for 15 years, it's a 15-year note. So that's not a bad investment and just on its own. Mm-hmm. And people are, in, are desperate for broadband, so they want the service. And uh, and here's an opportunity to make a pretty good rate of return while contributing to bringing um, essential service to your community. So it hasn't been a hard sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's still, for, for rural people, I mean, we're not, we're not talking fabulously wealthy people. These are ordinary folks. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, we've had very little contribution from, well, we haven't had many contributions from the from the very poorest people, but we haven't had many contributions from the richest either. It's been the, the middle class that's really stepped up on this. And and this, it hasn't been a hard sell. People understand, you know, they, they have mortgages and they borrow money for their cars and, and they understand what a... What a what a loan is, they understand amortization and principal and interest, and except in this case, they're lending the money instead of borrowing it. So mm-hmm. it hasn't been very hard. The hardest uh, there, there is there is legwork. I mean, there are many, many you know community meetings, town wine meetings, but um, really a lot of it is done by word of mouth uh, because we've been at this for four years. We have a well-known, established brand. We've had very good supportive local press. So we run into people all the time who, oh, I read about you in the paper. Oh, yes, I know who you are. So, um, And then once we started building the network, um, people who live just a mile beyond where we've built, because our, our maps are posted on the website, um, start calling us and saying, well, what's it going to take for you to get to me? And we say, well, have you got some neighbors who might be interested? And then we go out and we hold a little um, meeting in somebody's kitchen or (laughs) living room or whatever and go through the program and explain it, and then one thing leads to another. Hmm. Okay. So it is a process, but then... As I tell people, it's it's a lot of hard work, but it's a doable process. It's manageable. Yes. You can you can see an endpoint. You can see progress. People are pa- I assume people are patient. I mean, I know there's another place that I understand that you know once it starts, you know everybody then wants it all at once, which you know you kind of have to manage people's expectations a little bit. But um, you know it's well that's like true. But can, remember, they understand that. You know, we we only we we don't have um, you know big money bags behind us that we can right. we can only build what what for the money we raise. And, right, but they understand and, that. Okay, well, how much? Good. And it's it's twenty five thousand dollars a mile to to build the fiber yes. and take six people. Right. And so we the other say, thing I would got, say, you know, get a couple of people together. Typically, we have anywhere from 10 to 14 uh, people per mile in our territory, which is average for most rural areas in the United mm-hmm. States. And most rural areas where there are actual people, it's not average for uh, the Nevada desert, but it's average for... That's about the average for the rural areas of the entire United States east of the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. And so six people per mile, you know, we need 25 grand, and we'll come to your house. And people say, okay, we understand, and mostly they do it. And it's neighborhood by neighborhood. People are comfortable going to their neighbors, the people on their road, and say, look, why don't we uh, get together and raise this money and bring this to us? 
Mm-hmm. And um, it, as Leslie says, as the network builds out, more and more people find themselves just a mile beyond it, <laughs> a mile and a half beyond it. And so more and more neighborhoods are, oh, that's almost here. Let's get together. This is what it takes. Mm-hmm. And, and they do understand that this is a community community exercise because um, there are lots of community exercises in Vermont. It goes back 250 years. There's nothing right. new about that. Mm-hmm. The main new thing about this is that you actually get a rate of return for it. It's not a charitable contribution. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I would slow. say, Craig, mm-hmm. ahead, Craig uh, the, the point I wanted to make is rather than say it's a lot of hard work, I would say it's a lot of work, but it's enormous fun. Right. Because to me, uh, I say to people, it's like feeding starving children. When people who've been on dial-up um, see the prospect of fiber optic coming to their doorstep, I mean, we literally have had people say, oh, you're coming to my road next week or next month, Tell the guys that I'll have beer and sandwiches for them whenever they come by. It's that kind of response that you get that is people are so excited and so appreciative that it doesn't feel like hard work at all. We we wow. get we get emails all the time saying you've made you've made the biggest difference in my life of anything that's happened in the last ten years. Interesting. Yeah. Now now what would be um Two, uh, what would I say? This uh, two key things to do to get this, this this process rolling effectively, but also what are two challenges? Well, the, interestingly, the, the the network, the technical challenges are the easiest part. I mean, building these kind of networks is now becoming pretty cut and dry. The equipment's off the shelf, the technology's off the shelf. It isn't that hard to to build them. Um, it's the political and organizing that's the hardest, and the financing. And and this is more about community organizing than it is about um, about high tech. You, you, you have to run the network, and you have to have some people who know how to do that. But again, there are hundreds and hundreds of small telephone companies and cable family-run cable companies all over the United States, most of whom do just fine. So that's, I don't want to make it sound like that's easy. Like building it and running it is trivial, but it's not rocket science. Um, you know, the big companies tend to try and mystify it by uh, by making it sound like nobody can do it. But it, it it isn't thing. It isn't something that can't be done by most communities if they put their minds to it. The hardest part is the is the organizing of it, the organizing of the of the community, getting the you know support from the community. Having a structure that that's rooted in the in the um, in community institutions and so forth that's the hardest part hmm. and then in some cases, not in Vermont but in other states where you have to withstand a political onslaught from the cable and telephone companies but as a, we've as been a we, we, sorry go ahead uh, I was just going to say that that in Vermont we're we're fortunate. In that um, we're we're remote enough that we're not particularly attractive to the really big boys who've done so much da- so much damage elsewhere, um, and so we haven't been um, under frontal attack uh, the way we saw 
um, uh, Lafayette in Louisiana or what we saw in North Carolina. Um, that that just would not go over very well in Vermont. And in fact, I think if if such companies tried to behave that way, it would boomerang on them. That's just the nature of the culture here. Um, and uh, so you know, we we've been able to do this incremental process with without having to face that kind of direct onslaught. Hmm, okay. Um, now, what are some of the, I don't know, key things to watch out for if you're a community trying to do this and you don't want to uh, run afoul of, you know, regulators and, and all the rest? Well, a really big thing, in, as I say, in Vermont we have one of the most liberal laws in the state in the country as to what municipalities are allowed to do in telecom. They can do almost anything they want. However, we have very, very restrictive law as to how they can finance it. So in Vermont, it is absolutely stone-cold illegal to use any taxpayer funds at all for telecommunications. Mm-hmm. So you, that now some people think that's that's a, a um, you know a nail in the coffin or a hole in the bottom of the boat, but in, in fact it's not because uh, fiber optic. Networks can be perfect, can be financially self-sustaining and feasible in rural areas without any um, taxpayer money at all. And uh, to me, if I were doing this in some other state, even if it allowed the use of taxpayer funds, I would counsel against it because that is the first thing that draws the fire of the incumbents. Incumbents, they scream and yell and say, "Oh, this is unfair!" It's, uh, you, you know, the, the level, the no level playing field because towns can uh, can use taxpayer money to give an unfair disadvantage to Comcast. I mean, give me a break. Comcast is <laughs> you know, far bigger than the most states, let alone towns. Nevertheless, they they say that, and and people start to get very worried that taxpayer money is going to go into these things. So I actually think it's a good thing for somebody who starts a community network like this to eschew using tax, explicitly say we will not use taxpayer money. We are only going to use private money. And there are two reasons that come out of that. One, you disarm the political opponents. And number two, to the extent that you succeed in raising money from local people, you've created a cadre of in of local citizen investors and voters who have a very very big interest in making sure that your company succeeds mm-hmm. and in resisting the uh, the political arguments whereas if it's if it's a, a a town using taxpayer money it's it's harder to get that kind of really down in the trenches Support, you know, people who will fight to the death to support the company because they got their own money in it. Mm-hmm. And it's so I'm, I mean, I'm. I, I, this is sort of counterintuitive, but um, that's not the first time in my life I've been counterintuitive. I actually think a good thing to do is to organize a strong community organization and then state from the beginning you're not going to do it with taxpayer money. You're going to mm-hmm. do it with people money. And that's that's fine. I mean, I know that outsourcing, if you will, it's it's one of those things. I know the people to the left of me get um, disgruntled about as well. You know, we should be doing this because it's the right thing to do, and and this and that, yeah. which is true. 
However, it yeah. is not necessarily polit- politically expedient, and you get into all these moaning and complaining fights, and yeah. it's like, who needs the aggravation? Most of those folks aren't actually doing anything. <laughs> the other thing is that this is a business, and to make it successful, it requires business discipline. Right. Um, and with proper business discipline, these things will pay back the investors, and ultimately, we expect return something to the towns by way of any kind of economic surplus once once the network is is fully built out. And you know, we believe that that kind of business discipline is good and healthy, and builds a strong enterprise and builds a stronger organization. Mm-hmm. And 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 keeping that in mind, I think is important. Uh, because then, you know, you don't make the same kind of decisions, obviously, that a, that a Comcast or a large incumbent makes, but you do make those decisions important for the survivability of the right. network right. when you Absolutely. run it as a business. And, and I, think, I do think so, these things should be, Leslie's right, these things should be run by people with, with business experience and business discipline mm-hmm. and, and and who understand you, you know the value of a dollar, <laughs> or yeah. and a quarter end of a dime. You know. Oh, no, that's uh, that makes you know that makes all the sense in the world. I think it's you know as I see it, you can tell me you know because you obviously talk to lots of people, lots of people talk to you. I see this as the evolution. You know, I see, well, I see two types of evolution. One is communities building a structure to finance their own. I think that as this, as more stories like yours are told. People will be more comfortable with that, but I also think that some variation on the public-private partnership, when done correctly, as in you 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 structure relationships that don't ultimately screw over the townspeople later inadvertently, um, but but the the public-private partnership has a role to play, and then more people. Yeah, will this feel is a, this is a public part. That EC Fiber is a public part private partnership. Mm-hmm. I mean, the towns actually own the network. They are the owners of the network, and they issue the debt. Even though it's it's not that no taxpayer money's in it, mm-hmm. the the town created entity, EC Fiber, is a municipal entity. It issues the debt, and it owns the network, and it sets the policy. But the designing, building, and operating of the network is done by a business. Mm-hmm. It's a nonprofit business, but it's still a business. I mean, right. it's a corporation, and it's a business. And and it has a 15-year history of being successful as a business. So the marrying of those, and, and the, all the money is private. Mm-hmm. So it is a private, it is a public-private partnership, just of a somewhat, you know, specific kind. <laughs> totally understandable. I, so I think ahead, this me. might be a, a good, po- good point very briefly, just to go into a little bit of the details of the governance structure. Uh, because it 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 will re, it will put some meat on the bones of the partnership um, idea that you've raised. Every town um, select board, which is the elected officials of the town, every town select board names a delegate and an alternate to the governing board of EC Fiber. That governing board meets every month, and the meetings under Vermont. Um, law are open to any member of the public. That governing board also elects an executive committee, 
which meets every week, almost every week by conference call. As I said earlier, the governing board and the executive committee have to approve the design, build, operate contract with ValleyNet, the operating company. There are also authority levels wherein if ValleyNet wants to sign a $100,000 contract, for example, it has to go back to the executive committee, or in this case, to get approval you know, for certain levels of expenditure. Um, when the decision to uh, issue these promissory notes was made, um, that had to be approved by the governing board. So any of these seminal decisions are ultimately made um, by representatives of the towns, even though the day-to-day -day operating business decisions are made by the operating partner, ValleyNet. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I think it was, you know, it, it appears to be, and again, you know, not just here, but in other places that are doing something similar, those are all the keys to success. You know, that there is accountability to the community. There's an understanding that, you know, the day-to-day -day operations are probably not something that you want the, you know, all the neighbors to have a hand in, but the, the key decisions are clearly ones that the, that the community uh, needs to make. And ultimately, always, always, you know, th that there has to be, safeguards so that you know no one individual or entity or whatever can take that that structure that asset away from the community right exactly okay. yep all right so we're all on the same page here for sure now let's talk about um the the community organizing aspect of it um you you mentioned that it's you know it takes a lot of work which you know i will definitely agree with but but how are you know what are some tips for Structuring your community organization effort. Do you do you get a like a small committee, a large committee? Do you delegate everything? Do you delegate half the stuff? I mean, how do you make the mechanics work? When, well, when we when we started out, um, the the it really was a, an activist group of about forty or fifty people that that started the thing. And um, when when we formed it, when it went from being an, an activist movement. To being a formal organization, and that happened when all 23 towns ha voted in favor of joining the contract. Then most of those activists became the delegates from their respective towns. So we had a built-in community organizing group, and I, I definitely feel strongly that that things like this, real aggressive, you know, proactive actions, tend not to come out of uh, political organizations like a town council, they tend to come from from you know activist groups of people in the towns or the county that care a lot about it. And and what you, what you what you want to get is a bunch of very active people who care and who are rooted in the community. Once once a, a, the town is sort of signs on to it in a more passive way, then those then those activists become the town representatives. And so we, we've had from the beginning a built-in cadre. I mean, the, the, the representatives and the alternates from 23 towns, 46 people, and plus some hangers-on and other people around. So we've had a cadre of 50, 60 people 
spread out throughout this 800 square mile territory who are who are knowledgeable and actively committed and they started as a as a you know as a community group as a as a citizens group just an activist citizen group and morphed into the governing board of the whole organization and that's that's a real i mean i wouldn't claim we planned it a lot of the good things that we've done have happened by accident as we sort of went along but um that's a really good way to think about it that you you start this with an activist group and structure your organization so that the activists can become the governing board certified by the towns and that way you keep the enthusiasm you keep the connection to the and, and you keep knowledgeable people i mean all our governing board members are are knowledgeable either in finance or business or telecom or software building or software development or computers i mean they're very high grade bunch of people and and know what they're talking about mm-hmm. and that's important this and, is uh, uh, interestingly uh, a, a a lot of what has helped build the organization is this wonderful talent pool which i'm sure you'll find almost everywhere so our logo was created by volunteers up until recently all our press relations were handled on a volunteer basis uh, our website was done by volunteers and now our website is being overhauled and upgraded also by volunteers and the legal you know, work the members. legal work was mostly volunteers mhm <laughs> legal work so, is not trivial in this so you know this is by by reaching out and and finding where the talent pool is and using your local talent again you build loyalty and and commitment i think um we've been extremely fortunate um to uh not have had too much um you know power plays or ego jockeying or any of that kind of thing um we've you know we've our treasurer is a former vice president of a bank i mean there's just you know, <laughs> there's just deep, deep talent that that has been willing, been enthusiastic and willing to help build this. The other thing I would say is that a lot of the energy, this wonderful positive energy behind DC Fiber um, comes out of a concern that without modern telecommunications, these communities are in danger of dying. And you will find that in much of rural America. Uh, People who value their rural way of life and their rural communities want to keep them strong. And so it's it's a kind of self-interest that helps drive this level of commitment. And we've been very fortunate here to be able to tap into that. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, no, that that uh, that's very good uh, advice for uh, for our listeners, and you know, sound. And, and I, again, I will say that you know, in talking to others in other communities, you know, they have voiced similar uh, similar kinds of concerns. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Wired West project in Western Massachusetts, which is very similar in the sense of you know, twenty. I forget how many of their towns 50, have come together. 50. They got fifty. Fifty towns. Oh, they're up to half oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about hurting cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, we work with on. them quite a bit. Yeah, we know them well. It's so just now, over the border. 
so now um one one of your biggest fans from from the UK is has joined us Chris uh, Condor with the Barn Project which ah. uh reminds me of a question I want to make sure I ask which is the physical build out part okay in in um in uh oh lordy for the Barn Project in the UK I mean literally the farmers are out digging the trenches right. but but you guys have granite so that that's not a doable thing how do you right. guys deal with the build out uh, in 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 Vermont, given all the terrain issues, and then also, you know, are are the people who do that work are they also local, or do you have to go outside for that? The the well, we're we're fortunate. We put ours on existing utility poles, and in the United States, we have a federal law mandating, we absolutely mandating that the owners of public utility poles permit. New tele if you're licensed, if you're a proper licensed telecom provider, you must be allowed on. Now they can delay a bit and they can charge money and they can fiddle around, but they absolutely must by law allow you on. In the UK, when we visited the Barn Project, we saw all these wonderful power poles across the countryside, all with nothing on them but power. We salivated at all these nice empty poles. But in the UK it's they're not allowed you're not allowed to go on them. So that's really a terrible shame. And in the UK, it would be very feasible and much cheaper to simply attach to the poles, but that's not allowed in, in, in the UK law, so they have to bury it. Fortunately, at least in Lancashire, the burying is feasible. For us, it wouldn't be. Uh, well, it is at, at a cost of, you know, an astronomical cost. Um, it costs us about $3 a foot to hang fiber, and it would cost us five times that to bury it. So we're 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 lucky that we we can we don't have to bury it. And um, our right? our construction is done by professionals. It's a local Vermont company. Yeah, we actually have a we have a contract with a design build um, construct uh, fiber construction firm uh, called Matrix Design Group. They have done the engineering. And they are are doing the actual physical construction. Um, so ValleyNet, um, you know, gets the pole attachment licenses from the existing utilities, and then um, Matrix goes out and actually hangs the fiber. And um, um, they also do. We do the connection at the customer premises with our own staff. So it's sort of a, a distributed effort. But this is a professional organization, and they have, um, it's actually a, a newly created Vermont company that um, is an offshoot of a company based in New Jersey, and they've been able to find and recruit uh, local staff here in Vermont, um, knowledgeable people. Um, you know, when a company pays their employees properly and treats them properly and other companies are not doing that, it's very easy to attract quality staff. And so uh, staffing has not been an issue. Now, the price you quoted for hanging the fiber, is that pretty much standard across the U.S.? No, no, we're pretty cheap. It's, it's, it's standard among those people, those companies, that have had to do this with their own money and therefore have had to think really hard about how to do it efficiently. 
when you do it with cheap or free money from the feds, then you don't think very much about how to do it as cheap as possible. But um, there are certainly many, a number of other companies around in the U.S. that, like us, have had to stretch their pennies who are getting these same numbers. But if you go to if you go to Verizon and ask what it costs, they'll tell you forty or fifty thousand dollars a mile for for aerial plant, and we're doing it for fifteen to sixteen. Seventeen is a bad number. Say between fifteen and seventeen thousand dollars a mile, and pl- and there are others who are doing that too. I mean, it's not a weird number. It's just not what AT and T and Verizon pay. Hmm. So about seventeen thousand. We're much more efficient than they are. Much more <laughs> No, But when you do it with your own money, raised from your neighbors, you bloody well, you know, you try real hard. Uh, that's good. That's good. So it's basically knowing how to stretch a penny. Well, I have another question relative to budget. Um, when uh, when you are establishing uh, the, 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 the budget, how, what factors do you put into into place? Um, uh, an estimation on if we get X number of customers, we have to spend X, or we will spend X and get to hopefully Y number of customers. I mean, what's the the, lo- the budgeting logic that goes in? Well, we don't. You know, I mean, I've spent most of my life in 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 finance and and telecom. So most of the time in telecom, you're dealing with larger sums of money and money which has been raised first and then you spend. But we don't have that luxury. Uh, we basically raise as we go and build as we go, mile by mile. And it's at this point, it's really, you know, what group of neighbors can come up with 25k a mile? And the 25k is roughly 17,000 per mile for the pass, what we call the pass. That's the fiber going down the road, and a thousand dollars each to hook them up. And six people per mile is what we six paying customers per mile at the end of the day, not necessarily the first immediately, but within a year or two, uh, is what we need for, for break for break even. And six six times a thousand is six thousand and and plus seventeen thousand for the past, that's twenty three thousand, two thousand dollar cushion to make sure you can deal with the unexpected um you know events and you've got twenty five K miles. So we raise we raise the twenty five k a mile and we spend it as we go. Hmm. We don't uh, have a big pot. Of, we don't have a big bank account from which we draw down. We go hmm. go along piece by piece. And and the thing is, as the networks you know slowly inches out into the countryside, every every mile you go, another bunch of people are now close to you. Mm-hmm. And as you build the network out, you build the network out uh, kind of like the veins of a leaf. Mm-hmm. So you're as you go further out along each vein, each vein you're reaching another group, but now you have more and more veins. So mm-hmm. the number of people that are close to your network grows exponentially. It's a square function. Mm-hmm. And so each time we raise money, we we are we're now raising from a larger number of people who are close to the network, and who get excited and say, "Oh, you know, sit down with their neighbors and say, if we can only come up with 25k, we can all have this.'" And there are more and more of those neighborhoods. It makes it makes for an awful lot of of evenings in people's kitchens. 
<laughs> but um, and labor was that's actually fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Great now, fun. Now, one of the things in a uh, report that I did recently on uh, alternative ways of funding <clears throat> broadband, uh, one of the one of the folks I talked to said, you know, they 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 try to figure out the total cost for where they want to build, and they figure if they can raise a enough to build a third of that network. So, you know, if it's $10 million, they'll say, well, you know, if we can raise $2.5 million so that we can build a quarter of the network, that will give us the momentum then to be able to uh, start selling yeah. services and move faster to self uh That's what we're finding, yeah. Okay. We're, we're experiencing exactly that, exactly okay. that. Um, once well, that momentum we did, gets we, going, we try to, you keep raising yeah. the the amount of money that you raise each time goes up. So mm-hmm. it, it, this accelerates. That that process that you describe is exactly what we're we're experiencing and and what we're riding on right now. Interesting, Leslie. You had a point too. Well, yeah, I was just going to um, sort of circle back to a statement Tim made earlier, which was that we did our initial fundraising when we were. Starting out on this project, the very first round of financing, we tried to figure to do a business planning model uh, together with our design build firm Matrix to figure out what was the smallest feasible size of project that we could build that would be self-sustaining over time. And how much money did we need to raise to meet those criteria? So it's sort of similar. I mean, this other um, uh, enterprise you described came up with a rule of thumb that was a third. Well, since we know if we had used a simple rule of thumb, we would have said, oh, my gosh, we've got to raise, you know, 8 or $10 million, and then we would have given up. Uh, we approached it a little differently and said, what is the smallest feasible scale that could be self-sustaining? And it took a lot of iterations, you know, to try to figure that out. But uh, but eventually we did. Mm-hmm. Now let me ask a and question. And that size was under a million dollars. So let me ask another, um, <clears throat> another question here and change tack just a little bit. In... The U.S. at the moment, we have, I don't know, several thousands of miles of middle-mile fiber that's being built. And I keep asking the question, and nobody in D.C. Tens seems of thousands. To, tens of thousands, uh, even worse. But I keep asking this question and you know, in D.C. circles. Okay, so um, <clears throat> there seems to be this article of faith that if we build this middle-mile out to various areas that – magically a last-mile provider will show up. D.C. Well, yeah. DC itself has to be absolute the greatest. Rubbish. I'm sorry? Absolute rubbish. Okay. Absolute well, let me finish my question. No, let me finish my question. Yeah. I want to I want to establish the context <laughs> okay. here. Okay. So in, um, in D.C. is probably an interesting example because they, they are building a 100-gig network. It's like, you know, 100 nukes to basically build out one little small area. Um but they, and in rural communities where you know they're 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 looking at maybe just a gig middle mile network, are assuming it seems that like Comcast and Verizon will be the 
providers that will step in and provide the last mile while ignoring small local companies because they're small and they don't bring in the same you know, flash and gas as the big guys do. Are we destined for trouble? We're, it's, it's worse, absolutely. It's complete balderdash. It's actually worse than that because these, these middle mile networks come in and cherry pick the biggest customers. So it actually makes it harder for anybody else to come in and cover the rest, because your best, you know, your hospitals, your your uh, your few business customers, the government, have been cherry picked. So what what the small company that's actually providing service to people has an even harder job. So it's 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 not only stupid; it's actually nefarious. This middle so mile nonsense. So in essence, it's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Exactly what you expect out of inside the Beltway types who listen to who, who listen to lobbyists. So basically, if they had just done the middle mile and left it at that, leaving then the institutions alone, the institutions would have been the ROI factor for small companies actually right. providing the right. mile. That's right. So they've made it harder. Consider consider a situation. Leslie and I spent early part of our lives in in East Africa. Consider a situation where you're involved in economic development in um, in in rural Kenya, and and there are a lot of small farmers there raising bananas and cotton and coffee and so forth. And unfortunately, they have a hard time getting their stuff to market because they've got nothing but dirt tracks, and they have to take their stuff to market on on the backs of their bicycles. Mm. And what they need is roads, but they don't need highways. They need little roads where they can take a motorbike or a little a little car or a little pickup or something and get this stuff to market. And along comes this really great idea for a middle mile service. And it's a six lane, zillion dollar uh, highway that goes from nowhere to nowhere and doesn't have any off ramps. Mercy. And they say, well, if we build this middle mile, then along comes somebody will come along and build the roads that the farmers actually need to get their mar- stuff to market. That's bullshit. <laughs> Nobody builds that road. It just no, becomes a white point. elephant. It's just a white elephant. And most of these things are just white elephants. We have one in Vermont. $30 million to a private profit-making company. They built a middle mile network right down the same highways that all the other middle mile. There are already four middle mile networks in this state, and they built another middle mile network down exactly the same roads that all the other middle mile networks had. They're providing no service, to, and, and they're taking the they're going to the hospitals and the and the you know the VA hospital and the state this and the that and and, and actually offering quite high prices and no service for any ordinary people. They, because they can't. The network isn't designed that way any more than you can take things to market over a over a six lane highway that has no off ramps. So it's it's absolute baloney, absolute baloney. And it, so, it goes. It, why did it happen? Because the incumbents don't want federal money going to help final mile service because that's the core of their business. And they don't care about these middle miles because they know it doesn't do them any harm. <laughs> they're not they're not a threat. They don't provide any service. They're just white elephants. And to the extent that they have any use, the big incumbents will use them for their own long distance. And and so they're no they're no threat. They're, you, 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 this is this is a pure myth, pure balderdash. 
purveyed in Washington by by the incumbents and 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 bought and believed by the ignorant people in Washington who inhabit the bureaucracies and the and the and the staffs of the Congress. It's complete nonsense. So Six now, lane highways from nowhere to nowhere in northern Ghana. White elephant. But now, what's the solution? How what, how can we somehow take what is a really bad play and salvage something from it? Very hard to do because these middle mile networks are not engineered like a local universal distribution system. It's very it's actually more if if you once you've built one of these middle mile networks and engineered it in a way to be efficient for middle mile purposes, it cannot economically be re engineered and used for local service. It is actually cheaper to build a whole new network than to try and re engineer a middle mile one. It's they're basically wasted. I mean they can still be used, you know, for those for those few people who want to buy it for through roots, uh, they're useful for that. But there's a lot of that sort of that stuff out there. Say in Vermont we got four major through root networks all over the state and the feds gave thirty million dollars to a new for to another profit owner to build a fifth one. Down the same route. I mean well, So is is, well, is the reality so is the reality then that they basically put out specs for building a middle mile network, but they developed the specs in such a way that there are no even though they talked about them being if you design the network middle. that's right. But it's complete nonsense because the, the 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 Fed types that write these rules don't know what they're talking about. They're just ignorant. They're lawyers. They don't know what they're talking about. They've never engineered, built, or run a network in their lives. And the, the, you, if you build a middle mile network and engineer it to be efficient for middle mile purposes, it cannot be used for local. If you engineer it to be capable of local, then it's an extremely expensive, gold-plated middle mile network. But you can't do it efficiently for middle mile and also do local. If you build a local network, which is efficient for local purposes, it is very easy to package onto it an extra number of fibers that give you through-mile capability. So a, lo a universal local distribution network can easily be have middle-mile capability added to it cheaply and efficiently, but you can't engineer the other way. Nice. It's a one-way engineering option, not a two-way engineering option. And so there we are. And so, so there we are. Yeah, there's millions, tens of millions of dollars being spent around the country. And I won't say they're completely useless. I mean, they're useless. They're useful for middle mile purposes, as long as they're not being built where places where there are five options already. And Vermont, there are already four options. So right. The fifth one, Philly. That's not true everywhere. So in some cases, the middle there is indeed a need for middle mile ca capacity in which case the money isn't being wasted. But don't pretend that somehow or other you're creating a, 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 you know, a fertile environment for local to happen. You're not. You're just not. Were there no you're voices? doing a middle mile job. Good. Where in the middle mile job is needed, good. It's not wasted. But you're not, you're not bringing service to ordinary people at all. You're not even helping it.
And so th- th- this holds true then for wireless as well as wired last mile options? Wireless is a different game. Wireless, I mean, wireless is in its, there is no such thing as middle mile wireless. No, wireless no, no, no. What is I meant by was, very nature a, a, a final distribution network. No, no, no. So what I meant to was, the extent, hold on one second. If what your middle mile network is, invi- is engineered to serve cell powers, and that's the way it's laid out. Okay. Then that's helpful for cell service. That's cool. Now, cell service isn't much, isn't all that useful for broadband. Even fourth, four G isn't that useful for broadband. Right. But but it's still a good thing. Capital G, capital T, extending cell service to rural areas which have poor is a good thing. But middle mile networks are not normally engineered that way either. I mean, cell towers are up on mountains and often weird places. Middle mile networks are engineered to go from large town to large town by the shortest routes. So it's not often that middle mile networks are engineered to be optimal for, for cell tower support. But to the extent that a fiber network is supporting cell towers, that's good for cell service. Who's against that? I mean, I'm for it. For it. It's a good thing. But it, it's, it's a bit not like accomplishing the mission. It's that not a co- well. It's the, accomplishing the a mission, it. not the mission they claim they're co- accomplishing. Right. We've been sold a mission, and we're looking at some really dire options here, in in, in the final analysis. And uh, and I guess my and the thing I was trying to get to was that wireless last mile is not going to be served by this middle mile shortcoming either, right? I mean, you're basically by and large no. No, I mean uh, there 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 may be cases. I, I don't know every single project, but there may be cases where the middle mile network has been has been designed with the view to support um, lots of cell towers all over the country. But that's that's rare. I mean, middle mile networks go from large user to large user, from large town to large town, and that along that route, there are very rarely that. That's not where the cell towers are. The cell towers are in places picked to be optimal for radio propagation. And um, it's unusual that a middle mile network would be designed to be optimal for the purpose of supporting cell towers. Hmm. But that, that's that's different. I mean, cell towers are supported by networks that are designed to support cell towers. Well, then, and with that... You don't run 144 strands of cable to support a cell tower. Right. Right. You do run 144 strands, and it would be silly if you were drawing, if, you know, if you're building a middle mile network to pick up, you know, all the towns of 50,000 or 100,000 people in, let's say, Nebraska. You wouldn't necessarily, and you're running 144 strand cable. Well, the location of the cell towers is different. You're certainly not going to run 144 strands of cable all out to all these little places with their cell towers. So it's a it's a different design task. And it and it generates different different economics and, and different engineering specifications. None of them are bad. I mean, a network that supports cell towers is a good thing, but it's not a middle mile network. It's a cell tower support system. Right. We just need to be clearer on the nomenclature because clearly we've been promised versus what we got is are two different things. Yeah. And with that, unfortunately, down note, we'll have to come back and have another interview later to kind of leave on a more positive thing. I mean, I appreciate <laughs> you guys talking about 
you know, what you've done because clearly the, the work that you've done is extremely positive and it's also very good and very instructive to the rest of the, 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 the country. And as you've described the, the trials of the middle mile that we were promised but not getting, it sounds like more and more people need to revert to what you guys are doing and just do it themselves. And, right. and for the that message, bring service to people. Excellent. And that that job requires clear focus and and projects that are designed to do that job. Excellent. And I want to thank uh, both of you for being our guests today, uh, Leslie and Tim. It's been very informative. Thank you to our audience, and thank you to Team Fischl for being our sponsor. We will see you again uh, sometime soon, and hopefully I'll have you folks back on the show. Have a great day, everybody. Sure. We'll talk again. Enjoyed it. Craig. See you, Craig. All right, take care. Bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.